It was supposed to have sounded something like this. Farmers in Laos saw small balls, like toys, falling from planes in the sky. Some exploded, others just lodged in the ground. They called them bombies. After nine years, one-third of their small country had a bomb on it. As one Laotian said, the bombs fell like rain. For the first time, an American president admitted that his country dropped those bombs. And as a result, innocent people became refugees. Obama didn't apologize, but he stood in Laos and explained why the U.S. made bombs rain from the sky. More bombs than the U.S. dropped on Germany and Japan during World War II. I realized that having a U.S. president in Laos would have once been unimaginable. Six decades ago, this country fell into civil war. And as the fighting raged next door in Vietnam, your neighbors and foreign powers, including the United States, intervened here. As a result of that conflict and its aftermath, many people fled or were driven from their homes. At the time, the U.S. government did not acknowledge America's role. It was a secret war. And for years, the American people did not know. Even now, many Americans are not fully aware of this chapter in our history, and it's important that we remember today. Obama said he was doubling U.S. funding for removing unexploded bombs in Laos, bombs that are still killing and maiming people. The U.S., Obama said, has a moral obligation to help Laos heal. So when did America change from a country that wouldn't admit it dropped the bombs to one that accepts responsibility and makes things right? Possible answer? When Laotians became Americans. You bombed our country, therefore we had to leave it and come here. You educated us to know what our civic duties are, and this is how we contribute back. To make America great again is we're going to make America accountable for the actions they've done. This episode is the story of the refugees who resettled in the United States. The adults tried to never talk about the bombings again, but some of their kids put the story together and gathered evidence to substantiate what had become a myth. Oh, and then there's an interview with Tao Win of the folk indie group Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down. Her mom survived the Laos bombings. It changed the trajectory of both their lives. I'm Rupa Shinoy, and this is Otherhood. history, but I'm ashamed to say I don't know Vietnam War history well. It seems complicated and dense and grim. So at first, I didn't understand the significance of what Obama said. I had someone explain it to me. My name is Pitsamai Sijitokong Oi, and I'm an assistant professor at UMass Law in the Graduate School of Education. Pitsamai is also part of the group Legacies of War. It lobbied for years to raise awareness of the secret bombings in Laos. 
On their website, there's a map of Laos covered in red dots. So this, the, all the red is where the live active... It's red. <laughs> yeah, right? So yeah. that's where all the active live bombings... About two million tons of bombs were dropped. And so that's an equivalent to every eight minutes for 24 hours, a bomb was dropped for nine years. And these were cluster bombs. So they'd burst open and spray a bunch of smaller bomblets. It's the size of a tennis ball. You have a little child who's playing in the ground, finds it, thinks it's a ball, throws it, it explodes. They can't build schools, they can't build hospitals. They, they have to work around these bombs. Laos's only crime was that it was next to Vietnam. The U.S. thought Viet Cong were hiding out there. Laos was supposed to be neutral under an international agreement, so the bombings had to be a secret the U.S. kept from the world. In Laos, though, the bombings created chaos that fueled civil war. Pitsamai was four when her parents said they had to leave Laos. And my mom's like, we're going to go visit relatives in Thailand, okay? First, Pitsamai's father left with her brothers. Her mother followed by boat with Pitsamai and her sister. She bribed a cargo captain and put us into these pickle barrels in the middle of the night. And she made it all like a game. Like, okay, you be quiet and we see who's going to be the quietest. So then we would sneak over and then be reunited with, with my father and my two brothers. They were placed first in a state prison. And then when space opened up, a refugee camp. Two years passed. One day, an American colonel visiting the camp recognized Pitsamai's dad. They had worked together. Pitsamai's dad had helped the Americans gather intelligence about Viet Cong supply lines. The colonel helped Pitsamai's family come to the States. You know, I grew up in Vermont thinking I'm an all-American girl, and I'd play soccer, and I'd do apple picking, so I think I'm an American immigrant story. And the story she knew didn't begin with her adopted country secretly bombing her homeland. Pitsamai didn't know about that until she went to college and got an assignment to interview her mom about how they came to the United States. And so I interviewed my mother, and she's like, well, yeah, there was these bombings that were happening. And I'm just like, oh my God, why hasn't anyone told me this before? And what I realized later is that when communities have trauma, you, you have this you know, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, where you don't want to say too much because it might trigger you. And so my mom and a lot of our elders have this culture of silence. So Pitsumai let it go. A few years later, Pitsumai was working as a teacher in the Boston area when a woman from the Ford Foundation visited her school. Chunapa Kambunksa was working on a project to identify and connect refugee communities. Chunapa showed Pitsumai a stack of papers scrawled with simple drawings done in pencil, crayon, marker. They looked like the work of children, except the pictures showed people running from bombs, bleeding, digging graves. They were messages from the past with a history of their own. The drawings came from refugees in Thai camps. An American volunteer gathered them and gave them to Senator Ted Kennedy. And in 1971, Kennedy held hearings on the bombings in Boston's ancient Faneuil Hall. The testimony the Departments of State and Defense submitted was later found to be incorrect and misleading. So little changed. And the drawings sat gathering dust in a Washington, D.C. office for years until someone found them and gave them to Chanapa. And she showed them to Pitsumai. And they looked at the drawings together in the early 2000s and thought, OK, how can we raise awareness about the secret bombings? Because you and I don't know about it, and we were products of it and the reasons why we're here. Our elders are not talking about it. So we're losing our history. We're losing part of our identity here. 
they created a traveling art exhibit centered around the drawings, and they amassed supporting evidence. There was much more of it available than before. In 2000, President Clinton had declassified the CIA documents that confirmed the secret bombings. Teams recovering unexploded bombs in Laos provided shell casings labeled Made in the USA, and the pilots who dropped the bombs came forward. But Chanapa, Pitsamai, and the Legacies of War group still faced considerable resistance. We got resistance from the military who didn't want to share the classified information. We got resistance from the local Lao community because they'd be like, don't share bad stories about our community. And then we got resistance from just the general populace who's saying, oh, but we, we saved you, right? That was a good thing, the bombing. So what did you think about the fellow refugees who were saying, you know, they gave us a home? Did that feel conflicting for you? I think it, it's part of like civic engagement, right? So I feel like I have a sense of responsibility to share that, especially since the U.S. government was still using these cluster munitions as part of their military arsenal. It's in all of our interest to make sure that we're not killing innocent lives. I keep thinking about they drop all these bombs. just shows such disregard for the life on the ground. That life happened to be brown, and the country didn't include so many of those people then. And those actions eventually led to so many of those people actually becoming American. And now those Americans are the ones that change America in order to acknowledge this. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. just like, it's it's a strange evolution of America we're watching. Yeah, because I think it's because what this act and what President Obama has been able to show is like, it's because of the action of a small group that you can make such a large impact. Yes, the people... Um, like Henry Kissinger are saying that, no, this is just casualties of war, right? Because to them, it was just Laos. It was just a country. They didn't put people or faces to their decisions, and it was a military act. To Obama, who is actually going and seeing and meeting with victims, for me, it's very significant because it's a brown president looking into the eyes of other brown people, saying that I acknowledge what our U.S. government has done, and I'm going to do something to change it. And so I don't think any other president would be as sensitive necessarily just because of his lived experience being a biracial child living and growing up in a racialized United States. What about personally? It sounds like this has been a lot of your life. So I did that work as a teacher, right? And so, and when I was teaching, I'm like, oh, I only have a small group of kids, right? And so I'm impacting the small group. Um, Do you want to take a second? I suddenly realize Pitsma is crying. She gets a tissue and blows her nose and tries again. We never had a formal apology because Laos is still one of the poorest countries in the world because when you are bombed, you have no infrastructure to build basic institutions, education. So for us, it's saying, my bad, and <laughs> here you go. We're going to not only acknowledge that we did bad, but we also want to acknowledge and say we're sorry to the people we've hurt and that we wanted to contribute to the solution so that these bombs no longer hurt future citizens of Laos and that actually being accountable and taking responsibility. And for Pitsamai, this is where it all comes together, pressing the U.S. to do the right thing for her homeland and by doing so, becoming more American herself. And so for me, it's like, this is our contribution to ensure that children can go to school without having to risk their lives because they had nothing to do with the bombs. 
but they're so used to it. It's ubiquitous. It's all around them. So they think that's normal. And it shouldn't be any child's normal. And so for me, as a teacher, I think about the next generation and what we can do to ensure that they have a better and more peaceful life so that they can just be children and just fulfill their potential. And if we could do anything to help the Lao children or any children around the world, I'm just so honored to be part of that. What does your mom think? My mom, she's always like, why are you doing this? She didn't have the full scope of understanding either. And so I had her talk to the other, the other elders about it. And she's like, yes, of course. We just thought everyone had this experience. Just like when I was younger, I'm like, didn't everybody go to a refugee camp? What refugee camp did you go to? Right until you come here, and then you'd be like, no, I didn't. I wasn't in a refugee camp. No, bombs were not part of our, you know, repertoire of things that we see or avoid in our daily lives. That's what makes America great. Is that when the the citizens actually take action when they see something that is wrong, that they know that it just doesn't feel right, and it doesn't feel right for a reason. Um, and I think that's the power of our stories. That it shows that a small small community, once they found out what was wrong, they galvanized together and they built coalitions and brought community to say that we could do something better because we're capable of doing that. And we have the freedom and the honor uh, of being in a country that allows us to do that. And so that's part of us being Americans. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming. The estimates of how long it's going to take to clear the remaining bombs are pretty rough. It's really slow work. When funding was at $1 million annually, the estimate was it would take 100 years. But Obama's doubling of U.S. spending to $90 million over three years, that has to speed things up. Just the fact that the bombs have been made an issue and a priority, that's already making people who lived through the bombings more willing to acknowledge them. Because before, Chloe Dow didn't even want to think about the bombings. I read about it, I watched video about it, but I didn't know how impactful it was and how it's still impacting lives. Welcome to the runway. If Chloe's name is familiar, you may have watched season two of Project Runway because she won. Chloe's family, who are ethnically Vietnamese, left their home in Laos when Chloe was eight after the bombings. It's very personally hard for me to watch any documentary in Vietnam, in the Vietnam War. It gets me really sad and I don't try to think about it because it's, it's way too depressing. If you think too much about it, then you get angry. I can't get angry about the American policy because it's also brought me over here. Chloe grew up working at her family's fruit stand in Houston, Texas. When she chose to go into fashion, she felt guilty, but she had the grit and drive and confidence that kept her going. She won Project Runway against the odds and afterward became a QVC hit with her own design line. People say she has a unique ability to make women look good. Chloe didn't associate any of her success with being Vietnamese until she was a judge on Project Runway Vietnam. Yeah, I mean, the Vietnamese, this is what I realized about being in Vietnam. I'm very Vietnamese. Like, I'm very that culture that's like, everyone's bossy. Everybody thinks they're the boss. Everybody thinks they got the answer. So, and everybody speaks over everybody. 
Not that she performed particularly well on Project Runway Vietnam. Oh, no, I sucked. So <laughs> My family were so embarrassed by me. They're like, oh, my God, your Vietnamese sucks so bad. We couldn't watch you. So my family's brutal. Earlier this month, the group Legacies of War asked Chloe if she'd be in a New York fashion show fundraiser to raise money for clearing bombs. And Chloe was really happy to say yes, because she's always felt connected to Laos. And now it's a little easier to think about that. I mean, there's some more support and hopefully more money and more funding and more help. So at least it's more hopeful because I think it's there's a lot of bombs that's still there. It's scary, you know, and something that needs to be done. And I think now it's, it's getting done. I mean, press is all great, but let's hope we really get the money and the funding and it really happens. Obama told the people of Laos that he knew their tragedies had been overlooked. Cambodia, just to the south, often gets more American attention, partly because of the 1984 movie, The Killing Fields. It was there in the war-torn countryside amidst the fighting between government troops and the Khmer Rouge guerrillas that I met my guide and interpreter, Dith Pran, a man who was to change my life in a country that I grew to love and pity. The secret U.S. bombings created instability in Cambodia that led to civil war, the rise of the group the Khmer Rouge, and their genocide of 1.7 million people. There are many more Cambodian refugees in the States, and I do want to tell you a bit about the challenges of their resettlement, because they were considerable. But first, though, I want to quickly address the word Khmer. Most Americans are used to hearing it said Khmer because it's spelled with an R. It's actually pronounced Khmer, though, and I'll be saying it that way. Most of the Cambodian refugees are of the Khmer ethnicity. The second largest cluster of Khmer in America happens to be in Lowell, Massachusetts, 45 minutes west of the World Studios in Boston, where I'm based. I first went to Lowell several months back when Otherhood listener Mark Vanderhyde told me Cambodian Americans were protesting a visiting Cambodian official named Hun Manette. I reported that story for the world. Protesters said Hun Manette's father, Prime Minister Hun Sen, was a dictator who had been a member of the Khmer Rouge and still rigs elections and jails dissidents. Lowell residents who had lived through the Cambodian genocide, like Camera K, helped convince the city council to denounce Hun Manette's visit. I remember, I remember seeing bodies with a blue grocery bag wrapped around their head, suffocated in the rice field and left to die. I have to accept what I saw and appreciate what I have and continue to advocate for the better future. But Lowell State Representative Rowdy Mom, the first elected Cambodian-American, told me Americans should stay out of Cambodian politics. As a child, Mom worked tending to Communist Party members' cows and lived in a refugee camp. Now he's an acupuncturist, and I visited him at his office. I know what pain and suffering. I know what it's like to be under the oppression. I know what it's like to have no freedom. But Cambodian politics has nothing to do with how we lived here. They can fight among each other. 
That story I did illustrated a fundamental disagreement, whether first-generation Americans have a right to participate in the affairs of their homelands. The dispute simmers in many refugee and immigrant communities, but usually it's not debated so publicly. So I wondered whether the fact that the American Khmer community is willing to publicly disagree, I wondered whether that showed it was at an evolutionary stage where the Khmer weren't so focused on surviving poverty and retaining their culture while gaining a foothold in America. Maybe now they felt confident in their place in the U.S. and in their American-ness. So much so, they're doing things that are fundamentally American, like protesting, kind of like Pitsamai and the Legacies of War group. I didn't know how to check this theory, but I went back to Lowell to try, and I enlisted a volunteer from the Cambodian Mutual Assistance Association to help. My name is Bopa Malone. I'm a regional business advisor at Enterprise Bank. I'm sorry, I've been mispronouncing it. I've been saying Bopa. Oh no, it's I okay. People, no, people, uh, that's fine. The H, it's always, um, uh, there's an H in Cambodian names a lot, but the H is always silent. But you, how would you know that? If you go straight and then take a right whenever you can. Bopa took me to see Linda Sopipsu at the Lowell National Historical Park. Hi, I'm Rupa. Rupa, nice Rupa. to meet you. Rupa, this is Linda. <laughs> Hi. Nice to meet you, too. She's in charge of showing people the town's last remaining working mill, which is mostly for show. Lowell was once a boom town because of the mills, and many immigrants got their start here. But the textile industry was dead by the time Cambodians arrived. They came for the remaining jobs on assembly lines in factories that made things like electronics. My mom works for a spooling company, so they spool the electrical wires, and so she's been there in her entire, that's her only job she's had since she came to America. So like winding a wire around a... A big, big barrel, like, you know? And so this petite little woman who's like managing this heavy equipment to get all these wires and spools, it's slicing her, like cutting, whipping, ripping off, because when, um, when you spin it, sometimes it breaks. But Linda's mom never thought she could do anything else. She was a farmer, illiterate in her own language, like many of the Khmer refugees. A steady stream of them came for the assembly line jobs, and then more came just because there was a large community. The Khmer population grew exponentially. And it was not like trickles of like, you know, we came at droves, so it's like there was no ignoring the one Khmer kid in class, because half of the kids were Khmer. They had to shift really fast, and so of course people made mistakes. People, as in the Americans in Lowell, trying to help. Some of the challenges they encountered then are familiar to us now, like a lack of services and schools for kids who don't speak English. Bopa told me one story of this that she still thinks about often. I didn't know any English at all. The only thing I knew was yes and no. And then the teacher had asked me a question, but I didn't understand the question. So I said yes. And because I said yes, she puts me in the bathroom. But I didn't know what I did wrong to be in the bathroom and I didn't come out. I thought that was my way of getting punished because I did something wrong and I need to stay in the bathroom. The teacher forgot about her. Bopa went home. She didn't want to go back. Her uncle, her family's sponsor, yelled at her. Why didn't you want to go, he demanded. And finally she told him, they sent me to the bathroom. I didn't know I could go back to class. Eventually, Bopa sorted the situation out. But there were many things like that that scared and confused her. Her parents couldn't relate to a girl growing up American. They were suspicious. They thought she'd end up pregnant, even though Bopa didn't spend time with boys. 
Boba saw her parents treating her brother very differently, giving him more freedom and fewer chores. That left an impression on her. As the Cambodians settled in Lowell, there was a more dramatic, widespread conflict with the American community that cut to the heart of how drastically two cultures can misunderstand each other. It started when Khmer kids began coming to school with red marks on their skin. Marks just like the ones Michael Phelps had in the last Olympics, if you watched. These marks are made by what's kind of awkwardly termed cultural practices, cupping and coining. Basically, cupping is applying suction to the skin. Coining is more of a light scraping. Malika Tang says kids had to find a way to explain that coining and cupping were harmless things Kamai do to promote health. When people didn't understand it, they thought that we were abusing our kids or abusing ourselves and stuff like that, and not really understanding that this is like a way for them to relieve if they feel feverish or if they feel really sick um, or cold and stuff like that. Were those kids you at that time? I did get coined <laughs> um, when I was younger, when I first came to the country. Um, when I was really sick and I went to daycare and I showed my daycare provider and they actually called like DCF back then because it was very misunderstood. Yeah, you can talk about it now, but it must have been really yeah, even, emotional then. Absolutely, because, you know, with child abuse, the first thing that you do is when you see something like that, right, you call the authorities. Um, and then you're coming from a country where authority wasn't necessarily a good thing. Kamai adults got proactive with help from their older kids. They started intentionally building up institutions like the Maitha Health Center, where Malika works. It's a health facility the size of a small city block. And it's the first of its kind to integrate Eastern and Western medicine, including counseling tailored to the needs of refugees, like those coming from Syria. So this wing is actually an old wing. Where we were at before, that was the extended version, because we were growing at such a fast rate, um, especially when the, the refugee and immigrant populations um, were coming through, that we were running out of exam rooms. So how did you get the money to do this? Um, some of it is federally funded, um, and other is from fundraising and donors. So the Khmer have made a lot of progress. But being honest, Malika has to say the progress is uneven. Some of them are still suffering a lot with alcoholism and gambling and, and stuff like that. And others have just kind of moved on, right? They're just kind of dealing with their stuff and trying to make the best of it. They just don't want to hear anymore about like war and stuff like that. Some older people, though, have finally been able to start talking about what happened in Cambodia. And that's helping younger people understand their own feelings. This is Linda again. Like so many times, like I know more about my grandma's experience than my aunts do because she doesn't want her kids to know exactly how bad she, you know, had it. That's just a coping mechanism for them. I don't want to directly tell my kids how much I suffered, so I'll share with someone else who will eventually share with them when they're ready. If I burn my youth, would it come to me? Oh, love, won't you bite my eye? I miss the sweet garden men, baffle a skeleton dry. All they wanted was a villain, a villain, and all they had was me. All they wanted was a villain, a villain, so then they just took me. I didn't realize until this episode was almost finished that every voice I've included is female. I could tell you that was intentional, but it wasn't. Now I'm glad, though, because maybe that'll help you understand Tao Win. Remember of Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down, an indie folk group with loyal, fervent fans? 
Tao's collaborated with people like Andrew Bird, and in one of her recent music videos, she sings into a bathroom mirror alongside Ira Glass and John Hodgman. Tao's parents were refugees. She grew up in a single-parent household in Virginia, where her mom ran a laundromat. Tao's been kind of an enigmatic, romantic figure who's been reluctant to say much about her life. So I was surprised when I told her I wanted to talk about what happened during the Vietnam War and how it impacted her, and she was up for it. I guess the last time things like that were on record, I, it was the beginning of my career. I was probably in my early 20s, mm-hmm. and I've, I've grown up a lot, and I've embraced my identity and my heritage a, a lot more. And that just is a function of getting older and getting a better perspective. But yeah, in the beginning when I was starting out, it was because everything I did seemed to be qualified by this this sort of prefix that about my what my ethnicity was. And it didn't seem to be a respectful approach. That probably didn't change. It has changed. Uh, I don't know who's changed more, me or people who talk about my music. But I, I definitely embrace it a lot more. And I realized that if I had grown up seeing women who looked more like me, I probably would have had a different approach from the beginning. And it took people coming up to me and, you know, teenagers and young girls who were Asian American, who said that it it was important that they see someone like them who is doing this. The idea of Asian women being quiet and submissive and more passive, all those things, I, you know, it just, I, I needed my own time to see the impact of it. And now it's one of the reasons that I keep going. So does this echo in your life at all? What happened then? Was that what brought your mom? Yes. They were both affiliated with the South Vietnamese government. My dad was a pilot for the South Vietnamese Air Force, and my mom worked for the embassy, and she actually was stationed in Laos at the time that Saigon fell. And so they both were redirected. Neither were able to return to Vietnam. They met in Arkansas at some a military base that had been turned into a refugee camp, I guess. And then they were relocated to North Carolina. That's where they had my brother. And then they moved to Virginia and they had me. And then there's that story that always gets told about you playing guitar in the laundromat. That's right. <laughs> I worked there on the weekends and after school. And that's where I first started learning the guitar. And I, some customers would come in and show me pointers. But for the most part, I'd be making change for the laundry machines. The songs, where does the emotion come from? Did you know when you started? No, I just knew that there was this emotion that had up to that point never been tapped into. And so it was a real freedom for me, a real release and a real lifesaver to connect with this inner life that I didn't realize I had. Because there was a lot of emphasis on keeping things as smooth, you know, as turbulent as our house was and as complex as everything was, it was important to just keep trudging forward. (laughs) And so there wasn't a lot of room for an emotional life in that way, which I think a lot of people experience. It wasn't until I began performing on stage that I felt that emotion. And in a way, it's been remarkable. I kind of black out. You know, and it's there's there's a lot of pent up aggression and disappointment, and it's nice to have an outlet for it. I want to ask where it comes from, but I've read stories, and it always it doesn't seem like you like talking about it. Well, recently, I mean, this last record is about my my dad. But even then, <laughs> you don't really yeah. specify much. Like, 
what exactly uh, yeah, you're talking that's about. That's true. Yeah, it's uh, the content of these most recent songs are by far the most direct that I've been. And in a way, they are, they still remain pretty vague. <laughs> are you protecting yourself? Yes. Yeah, there's an element of self-protection. There's an element of protecting my family. I've already, you know, in what I've said in interviews, I've probably already said more than anyone would feel comfortable with. <laughs> You're right. In broader terms, I've talked about how this record has a lot of pain. Did it help? Do you feel differently now? I do. I feel a lot calmer and more at peace. But all of that is uh, making this record and releasing it and touring it hasn't changed the relationship that it's premised upon, you know, and I didn't expect that. I didn't expect to be in touch with my dad after I made this record. I didn't expect for him to get in touch with me. And none of that has changed. The main objective and the point of the record was to sort of muddle through and come to a peace on my own. I left for a living that I built myself. I understand myself better. And it was a real big relief and release to be outwardly sad and angry. Was it about understanding him or understanding his impact on you? It was more about understanding his impact on me because it's taken so long. It's taken most of my life for me to admit that it is such a huge part of my life. It has informed my entire identity and the way I exist in the world, but I just hadn't been able to admit how much pain it caused. So you think, so he lived through that and mm -hmm. he impacted you. So you must still be affected by what happened there. Oh, I 100% believe in inherited trauma, the impact of war and losing your country and your family. There's no way that that is not passed on. And I can attest that very few direct words can be exchanged. And all of that is still a part of my makeup. Your music itself and you and your success are very American. Oh, yeah, that kind of Horatio Alger thing? Yeah, totally. I know, which I uh, worry about sometimes. I'm very weary of accepting that as reality. I still experience success as a woman of color. You know, I mean, I could, how long do we have? I could go <laughs> on all day with examples of why success for me, although I appreciate it and I, I respect it and all that said, the way I've experienced it has been barbed with inherent systemic social sort of shortcomings. <laughs> I don't know what to call them. I don't need to exist in more mainstream channels. I'm not necessarily interested in that. I don't fully know the compromises that I would have to make to do that. But I've any glimpse that I've had of it has made me recoil. I feel a, a lot more comfortable and strong existing within my own bounds. I think that what I'm capable of is different than what could be deemed possible by an outside marker of success. And I don't necessarily pay attention to those anymore. So you wrote about album about your dad. What about your mom? Yeah. And your mom was supportive this whole time, right? Yeah, uh, my mom's incredible. And she's been such a pillar. And I think that it's harder for me to write about my mom because there's so much gratitude, guilt, <laughs> and a debt that I feel for her that I don't feel for my dad because he wasn't around. 
I'm not indebted to him the way I am to my mom. And she worked so hard. I saw her just, there were so many indignities that she bore without being aware of what was happening because she does speak English fluently, but it is her second language. And so there were these nuances that even as a teenager, I was working in the laundromat and I could see customers come in with this kind of swagger and a condescension that she didn't pick up on and just was very sweet and did, you know, whatever it was asked. And this is pretty much where the rage comes from. That's painful there, to watch, right? It was. It was incredibly painful. But it's also, you don't know exactly how to express it. I didn't know what to do. And both my brother and I, she got us through college. Did you ever from feel one, bad about going into music? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, I have, but never bad enough to stop. And that is what is remarkable, is that she, in many ways, had to give up her life. That's a, a point of sadness for me, because she never looks back and she doesn't talk about regret. But the life that she led up until Saigon fell, sort of her trajectory was, was so different. And I, and I see that now, and, you know, and it's such a classic and really heart-rendering tale of what you have to give up and what you sacrifice and then how you're viewed in your new home. To see that she was going to be a diplomat, essentially, and then she was a cashier in a grocery store and she worked in the mailroom and then she eventually ran this laundromat. And she has no qualms about it. And so the weight that I carry is an inferred weight. All right, tell me if I'm wrong. I feel like I hear that in your music, like this wistfulness, this kind of bittersweet edge. Am I wrong? Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a lot of bittersweetness in my music. It's hard to tell all the different places it comes from. There are a few songs, older songs, that are more directly about my mom and that it was the platform to express that kind of regret and wistfulness on her part that she's never said out loud but it's hard to imagine that there wouldn't be some. Last year, I was able to go to Vietnam for the first time, and I brought my mom, which, and she hadn't been back since she left. So she left in 72, 73. And we were asked to perform at the 20-year anniversary of the normalization of relations between the U.S. and Vietnam. And that was the beginning of thinking more about my heritage and what I've inherited, both good and bad. And to really be, it was remarkable to be where there was war not less than 40 years ago. It just is still so much a part of the fabric. And I met relatives I had met before and everywhere we went, we saw altars to family who had been lost in the war. And it took me a long time to process. <laughs> I'm still processing what happened. Do you know yourself better? because of that visit and what it made you think? Yes, yes. Yeah, it was a chance to acknowledge and embrace a part of myself that I've up to that point been able to kind of skirt over. It was very joyful and very meaningful and emotional. I think part of the problem is growing up in a house like mine, you confuse emotion with pain. You confuse feeling anything with just this idea that you don't want to be feeling anything. <laughs> yeah. No, it's nice to feel things. I've been learning <laughs> in my 30s. I just started. Yeah. I don't feel like you've talked like this. No, I try not to. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, 
Well, thank you for doing it for me. Yeah, of course. Thank you. So that's this episode. Let me know what you think. As usual, you can contact me at Rupa Shinoy on Twitter and Otherhoods on Facebook. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm Rupa Shinoy, and this has been Otherhood from PRI. Субтитры